Good morning. Welcome to all of you brave souls who showed up today. You'd be glad you're already in here because of what's going on outside right now. But we were glad you're here. If you are visiting with us, we would ask that you would take an opportunity and take one of these forms from the pew rack in front of you, fill that out, give us some information about yourself, and tell, tell us how we may minister to you in a very personal way. At this time, we have a business to take care of, so I'm going to invite George Caballero to come to the platform and lead us. Good morning. In absence of our church moderator, Joel Weaver, I will officially open us and call us into a business session. I'm going to turn it over at this time to Karen Clark as representative of the Coordinating Council. Thank you. Today, we, uh, I come as a representative of the Coordinating Council bringing a recommendation to add Don Corley and Jennifer Borderud to serve on the leadership nominating team. Because this comes from Coordinating Council, it does not require a second, so we will go ahead and vote upon this. So all those in favor of Electing Don Corley and Jennifer Borderu to serve on the leadership nominating team indicate with a lifted right hand. All right. Any opposed, same sign. Motion carries. Okay. Uh, in that case, if there is no other, since there is no other business to attend to, and that way David Lentz does not have to record the entire worship series in the official church records, I will move to adjourn us from our, and close our business session. Thank you. As we move into the time of worship, we have a great hymn to sing. It's actually on page 228. We'll stand together and sing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Cannot fail 
of Jesus Christ. You are our rock and our refuge. Merciful God, let your face shine upon us so we may know your love and salvation in bringing life into our darkest hour. Eternal God, you are our source of hope and joy. You are our life rising from the death release us from the time of trial and oppression, because nothing can separate us from your love. We pray with grateful hearts in your holy name. Amen. Father, hopefulness, hopelessness looms like a thief, threatening to take away our vision of you. We hear it in Christ's anguished cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we too feel this anguish, anguish God. God. We, we confess, confess our sense of hopelessness. But you, O oh God, call us to hope in what we cannot see. May, May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. Be enlightened so that we can know the hope to which you have called us. And in our knowing, may we open our hearts to receive the hope that only comes from you. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, give us the courage and strength to hope. Help us to trust in the light of our hope in you and believe that you will not let go of us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it Little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. 
Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and also take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, This man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God.
laces I couldn't tie. The adults explained to me that I was going away for a short period of time and that my mom would be waiting when I came back. Six months is an eternity for a child. My biological mother has what we think is paranoid schizophrenia. I grew up on the streets, in and out of homeless shelters, sleeping on porch steps and stealing from stores. That time when I was six was my first foster care placement. I would be taken again when I was eight after I was found caring for my infant sister alone in a dilapidated home instead of attending school. For the next several years, my sister and I were juggled from home to home until we were placed with an adoptive family. On paper, they were perfect. She was a therapist, he was a pastor joining the army as a chaplain. But I cannot stress how awful the next three years were for me. My adoptive parents were cruel and abusive. The depth of my hopelessness was crushing. My first ray of hope came in the form of the Methodist Children's Home here in town, where I came to stay at age 15. MCH certainly had its challenges, but the comfort I found in the other girls there was surprisingly therapeutic. I graduated high school here in Waco and by some miracle found myself at Baylor. By this time, I had made friends with hopelessness. I was convinced that if I never placed my trust in others, particularly those in charge, and if I never had hope for love, I would be safe. The irony here is that hopelessness lied and stole from me. It might have protected me, but it was an awful trade that stole opportunities of love and belonging. My sophomore year, I felt the Lord say I was released from my adopted family and that I was receiving something new in their place. 
I took down my family photos, sent my last unanswered email to them. It was a Friday. My best friend at that time and her family, the Fry family, went to my church and I had spent some time with them, though admittedly from a distance. That Sunday, they approached me, asked me to lunch, and invited me into their family permanently through adoption. Here it was, my invitation to leave the cold but protective arms of hopelessness and enter the warm and risky arms of love. I initially told them no. But looking back at the sequence of events, I recognized a supernatural miracle at play. I said yes, and was adopted on December 16, 2011, at age 19. And I wish I could say it's been simple and easy, but I can say that my family's love has been an elixir of hope, a steady testimony on which to restore my faith.
Now, gracious God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Edward J. Smith, the captain of the Titanic, said to the remaining members of his crew, well, boys, do your best for the women and the children, and look out for yourselves. And those were his last words. He then returned to the bridge of the Titanic, and the ship took its final plunge into the ocean just moments later. When Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, she was surrounded by her family and they were singing together. Her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Leonardo da Vinci was actually pretty self-deprecating with his last words. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have as if the Mona Lisa wasn't good enough. As Marie Antoinette went up the stairs to the guillotine, she accidentally stepped on her executioner's foot. Legend has it that her last words were, pardon me, sir, I meant not to do that. George Harrison, lead guitarist of the Beatles, famous last words were this, love one another. Sir Winston Churchill is known for saying, I'm bored with it all, in his final breaths. <laughs> John Wayne died at age 72 in LA, and as his final moments, he turned to his wife and said, you're my girl and I love you. In Charles Schultz's final comic strip released the day after his death, he wrote about his beloved Peanuts characters. And he said, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, and Lucy, how can I ever forget them? And when Karl Marx was asked if he had any last words, he said, no, last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. Well, whether or not you agree with Karl Marx's statement, I think it's fair to say that last words are significant. They almost always say something about the person offering them, who they were, what they valued, how they wanted to be remembered. Except when you consider that, it makes Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew all the more troubling. Matthew tells us that at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that moments later, Jesus breathed his last breath. Jesus's last words are excruciating. In light of everything that Jesus has done, everything that Jesus' life has been about, everything that Jesus valued and believed and continually pointed us toward, how in the world do we wrap our minds around the idea that these were Jesus' last words? What do we do with that? 
We have been in a worship series here at Calvary on the stewardship of pain this Lenten season. And I don't know about you, but with all of the other experiences of pain we have discussed, it's, it's always been somewhat reassuring to realize that Jesus felt these pains too. That even Jesus was betrayed and knows what that feels like. Even Jesus grieved. Even Jesus felt rejected. And so when you and I encounter those things, we're not alone. Jesus meets us there. But to think that in Jesus' final breaths, he was in a place of hopelessness, a place of feeling forsaken and completely abandoned by God just when he needed God the most, that's just a bit more challenging for me to unpack. I mean, I would feel so much better if Jesus' last words were, Peace, I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Or take heart, for I have overcome the world, like we read in John's Gospel. Or what if Jesus' last words were what we read later in 2 Corinthians, that because of the power of God at work within us, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. What if Jesus would have reflected back on Isaiah saying, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. I have a long list of so many things I would rather Jesus have said in his final moments, but he didn't. He didn't. And so what in the world do you and I do with these last words that Jesus uttered in Matthew's gospel? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some scholars think that for Jesus to have been in a place of such hopelessness is just impossible. They can't fathom that Jesus would have felt something so dramatic. And so the way that they interpret these words is that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, which begins with these exact words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then it ends on a much more positive note, with all the people on earth praising God. And so they think in that moment, obviously Jesus couldn't get all the words out to Psalm 22, but that's basically what he's recalling, and not part of the psalm, but the whole. And so instead of these words being a cry of despair, some scholars interpret Jesus' words to be this triumphant declaration of his faith in God. But I think this interpretation is a bit challenging, at least for me to accept given that everyone else standing around him hears Jesus' words as a desperate cry for help. And the truth is, Jesus could have called out at least some words of faith in this moment, and yet he does not. Now, at the opposite extreme are the interpreters who take Jesus' last words as evidence that Jesus must have lost his faith in God in his final moments. Jesus must be looking back on his life and ministry as a complete failure, according to them. But given what we know about Jesus and about the rest of the story, this interpretation doesn't seem to settle right either. 
But in the midst of these two extremes, I think there's another option for understanding Jesus' last words. What if we were to view them not as a triumphant declaration and not as a faithless rejection, but as brutally honest? What if we were to view them as brutally honest words to the God Jesus loved and spent his life following? What if Jesus isn't giving up on his faith, but is in fact expressing his faith in the God he knew was big enough to handle all of his pain? You see, all throughout the Old Testament, people of faith did not consider it inappropriate to argue with God. In fact, as as Douglas Hare writes, the intensity of the rebuke is often directly proportional to the depth of the faith from which it springs. After all, only those who have great confidence in God can be disappointed when God remains aloof. I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus is speaking directly to God in this moment. This is different than, say, the Israelites in the wilderness who are grumbling about God, like we read in the Old Testament. But when we look at the Psalms of lament in Scripture, they give us permission to complain to God, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Tremper Longman writes, The Israelites spoke about God behind God's back, or at least that's what they thought they were doing. But the complaints of the psalmist are often spoken directly to God. And whereas the wilderness generation had given up on God, the psalmist had not. Even though they often addressed God in anger, they spoke to him, asking for help and hoping that God would answer them in their distress. And so if you are in a place of significant pain today, if you are in a place of hopelessness, if you are feeling completely abandoned by God, Know that even in the most excruciating places of pain and despair, Jesus still meets you there. And just like Jesus did in perhaps the most painful moment of his life, I believe one way you and I can steward our pain in these moments when life hurts the most is for us to be brutally honest about it. We can yell it out, we can cry it out, we can name our pain and our disappointments and our hurts and our anger before God. Friends, we can be angry at God, trusting that our God is big enough to handle that. And in some ways, that's what we've been doing together here at Calvary for the past five weeks. We have been honest about our pain in this space with God and with each other. We've lit candles around the room in recognition of our pain. We've met in small groups together and we have held space for one another in our pain. For five weeks we have been naming our pain in the sacred space, trusting that God is big enough to handle it and believing that even in the most difficult or painful or excruciating moments of our lives that Jesus meets us here. And it's been a beautiful, holy thing. But the final word I would offer to us as we close this series is this. We can't stay in this place. 
We can't sit with our pain forever. Yes, we have to name it. We have to be brutally honest about it. We have to create space for it. We have to bring it into the light and talk about it. I can't place any sort of timetable on how long we are to stay in this space. It's a necessary part of all of our journeys and it can't be skipped. And sometimes maybe it looks like a back and forth dance. We will always need to come back here from time to time. But all I know is that you and I can't park the car in our pain. We can't stay in this place forever. Because there comes a time for all of us when we have to take that next brave step forward. We have to get back up again even after we have fallen. We have to keep putting one foot in front of the other even when we don't feel like it. And sometimes that means acknowledging our pain but not letting it take control of where we're going next. You may remember that a couple years ago I shared a quote by the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. And she says that whenever she's about to embark on a new journey in her life, she writes a letter to her fear. She says, instead of ignoring her fear in these moments, she makes space for it. So she says, I'm heading out on a road trip, and I cordially invite fear to come along with me wherever I go. I recognize and respect that you are part of this family, she says to her fear, and so I will never exclude you from our activities. But know this, your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat, you are allowed to have a voice, but you are not allowed to have a vote. You are not allowed to touch the road maps or to suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you are not even allowed to touch the radio, but above all else, you are absolutely forbidden to drive. Then we head off, she says, advancing into the terrifying but marvelous terrain of unknown outcome. It isn't always comfortable or easy, but it's always worth it. Because if you can learn to travel alongside your own fear, if you can't learn to travel alongside your fear, then you'll never be able to go anywhere interesting. I love these words. I return to them from time to time. And in light of this series, I wonder what it would look like if you and I were to write a similar letter to our pain. To recognize and to name the pain that is part of all of our journeys, but at the same time forbidding that pain to drive the car. Because if we can't learn to travel alongside our pain, then we'll never be able to take that next brave step forward. That's actually why I included the Genesis text about Adam and Eve in our scripture reading today. Because the story of Adam and Eve in the garden isn't only a story about pain. It's also a story about how we survive. How we keep moving forward even when everything seems lost. And isn't this exactly what the disciples do after Jesus' death? We read Matthew's account earlier, but I really love the way that Luke gives a bit more attention to the details here. He says in Luke 23, starting in verse 50, Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. 
Now this phrase, waiting for the kingdom of God, is often used to describe faithful Jews. Simeon and Anna are described this way earlier in Luke. And so this phrase distinguishes Joseph as a good Jew, a respectable person. But I've got to admit that these words feel completely out of place to me, just verses after Jesus' last breath. Standing in Joseph's shoes, I'm trying to figure out why in the world he would be waiting expectantly for anything good to happen. And yet Joseph shows us what it looks like to keep going. Better yet, to keep hoping, even when everything seems lost. And so he goes to Pilate, he asks for the body of Jesus, he takes the body, he wraps the body, he lays the body. And likewise, the women follow Joseph. They return home. They prepare the spices. You see, these are all simple, very ordinary, everyday actions. And yet sometimes, isn't that exactly what it looks like for us to keep moving forward? To keep putting one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, and sometimes one moment at a time. I think even the most simple, ordinary actions can be acts of defiance, because that's how we show ourselves and the rest of the world that pain doesn't get to sit in the driver's seat of our cars, and by golly, it's forbidden to drive. But listen to how Fred Craddock points out what's happening here. He says that Jesus is being honored, symbolically speaking, by the entire country. You have women from Galilee, Joseph from Judea, people from north and south, both male and female, joining together to remind us that despite everything that has happened, Jesus has not been totally abandoned. You see, Luke makes a place in the story for hope, even in a seemingly hopeless situation. He gives the reader reason to believe that the story is not over yet. And isn't that the thing about our Bible? From beginning to end, it reminds us that even though our pain has been, is, and will always be a part of our stories, it never gets the final word. Never. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way, There's a lot of what happens these days that I would call spiritual bypassing, she says, where one offers a religious formula to help you stay on top. But I cannot sell out the Christian message which at its heart says that when the bottom drops out and you're screaming your guts out to God, there's more. It says if you are just willing to enter into the cloud of unknowing and meet God in the dark, and maybe even in the dark of a tomb, you might just be surprised. And so whatever pain you carried with you into this room today, Know that this is a space where you can be real about that. Know that you can scream your guts out at God, and God is big enough to handle that. But friends, I also want to challenge you to trust that there is something beyond this moment, beyond the pain. You may not be able to see it right now. You may not be able to touch it. You may not be able to possibly conceive it. But I want to challenge you to believe anyway. I want to challenge you to be audacious enough to have hope anyway. 
to keep taking that next step forward anyway, even when you have no idea what's on the other side. Because if you are willing to meet God there in that place, you might just be surprised at what God can do next. And so God, I ask that you would meet us in our pain today. Meet us in the spaces that no one in this room may even know about what we are carrying with us. In our anger, in our hopelessness, in our hurt, Meet us there. God, remind us that you're big enough to take our anger, you're big enough to take our frustration, and that we can be so brutally honest with you about that. But beyond meeting us there, I pray that you would help us to hope anyway, to take that next brave step forward anyway. to be brave enough to follow Jesus to the places we could never have imagined going otherwise. God, breathe your life and your hope and your spirit into us as we journey on from this place and as we journey toward Easter. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Whatever pain you carried with you into this room, Jesus meets you here. But he does something more than to meet us in our pain. He reaches out his hand and he asks us to trust in him and to follow him. Maybe you would like to do that today. Maybe you'd like to become part of this faith community here at Calvary, where in times of darkness and light and everything in between, we seek to follow Christ together. Maybe you want to take a small step to steward your pain today. There are stations all around the sanctuary where you can light a candle in honor of a significant experience of pain in your journey and trust that we will hold space for you in that. And so however God leads you to respond, our ministers will be in the back of the sanctuary ready to visit with you and to pray with you as we continue in worship.
On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. We say these words every three weeks in this space, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Calvary. But I wonder if they have become so rote that we don't realize their significance. They serve as a subtle but important reminder within our liturgy that Jesus was no stranger to pain. Just moments later, he would say to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He would plead with God in the garden saying, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And hours later, he would cry out in a loud voice from the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, on the night when he was betrayed, on the night when he was overwhelmed with sorrow, on the same night when he felt completely forsaken and abandoned by God, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he shared it with his friends. You see, he always answers sin with grace. He reveals kindness in every sorrow, in mercy, even in death. Jesus always guides our wayward steps toward home. And so 2,000 years later, we find ourselves following in his actions and taking a loaf of bread to remember that in our most painful spaces, Jesus meets us here. And so we come to this table to remember again how the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said take this and eat this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so come, Holy Spirit, come. No matter what pain we might carry with us as we come to the table, you are the God who makes all things new. The God who promises that our pain will never have the last word. In the sharing of this bread and this cup, may we know the living Christ who is with us now and even to the end of the age. Friends, you are invited to come to the table. sinking sand of nothing to cling to but your sweet hand no clear emotion 
Keeping me safe at night Only your presence Like a candlelight After everything I've had After everything I've lost Lord, I know this much is true like a precious oil oh yeah oh I kiss your feet Lord with a holy joy my tears and
think the choir is going to make their way up as I share some closing words. First of all, as they make your way up, give your neighbor a high five. Give somebody around you a high five. Choir gets high five. I'll get a high five. Yeah. So that's what we are going to, oh, I love it. Maybe we should do that every time the choir walks up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this is what we are going to be doing on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m with our friends at West Avenue. Um, It is star testing week, and this is always a huge encouragement to them. And so maybe you're not able to mentor during the week, but you can come make a high five wall with us. And so we hope hope we'll see you there at 7 a.m. on Tuesday. And feel free to leave as you need to to go to work. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which means hopefully we will be out of the park uh, with our neighbors at Greater New Light. There will not be Sunday school next week, but that's because we really need your help during this time to, to make worship in the park possible. So please read the worship folder for all the different ways you can be a part of that. Please bring generous helpings of food so that we can have enough for everyone who joins us. The following week is Holy Week, um, which means we'll have Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday services at 7 p.m., child care available. Monday, Thursday service is where we have traditionally done foot washing, and it's an incredibly vulnerable and meaningful time in that service, um, especially if you're a family with children. I am always blown away when I watch children and families engage in that time. I think I snapped a picture of Davis Eggleston last year washing Chad's feet. And so we really encourage you to come and participate in that. Additionally, though, we will have a hand-washing station available this year as well. We have heard that for some people the foot-washing station is challenging, and we want to be inclusive of everyone, and so we don't want that to stop anyone from coming. We hope you might participate with that part of the service as well. Lastly, today uh, we will receive our Samaritan's Fund, um, which goes toward emergent needs in our congregation and community. And I can share that we have a pretty significant need within our congregation right now that the fund hasn't been able to help because funds are a little low. And so your generous giving today really will help us to be able to meet that need. Well, for the past several weeks, we have spoken a benediction in this place Um, But instead of our speaking these words from Isaiah 41, the choir is actually going to sing them over us as we conclude our service. So please receive their words as our benediction. 